Hello and welcome to the Clifford Chance Lab Chat series podcast, where our experts discuss legal innovation developments and trends faced by lawyers and the business world today. My name is Joanne Chuang and I'm the Legal Innovation Lead at Create Plus 65 and I will be your host for today. Create Plus 65 is our first global innovation lab, a strategic space that unites our lawyers, our clients and the wider legal community to discover the future of legal services through research, education and collaboration. During our lab chat episodes, we invite industry-leading speakers to discuss trending developments, interesting conversations and engaging topics around legal innovation and technology in the Asia-Pacific region and beyond. In today's episode, we will be diving into some insights as to how innovation is a driver for graduates and how universities in Singapore, specifically the Singapore Management University, are preparing graduates for the future. We have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Gerald So from the Singapore Management University, Yongpang Hao School of Law to join us today. Welcome, Gerald. Great to have you here with us today. Shall we begin with a quick introduction about yourself? Hi, everyone, and hi, Joanne. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Gerald. I teach and research law at the SMU Yongpang Hao School of Law. I've been here for about four years now, and my research and expertise really revolves around law and technology, to be specific. I'm interested in how can, will, and should technology be used in the law, not just by lawyers, but also legal professionals, broadly speaking. In my research, I look at things like how we can apply computational methods of analysis, computer science principles to better understand the law and to try to achieve fairer outcomes. I'm also looking at things like technology and AI regulation. So that's more on the law of technology side rather than the technology of law side. Thank you, Gerald. Our future law graduates are definitely very fortunate to have experts like you who's keen to advocate and explore the use of technology to expand the study of law. And before we go deeper into today's discussion, I would like to ask you this question which I'm often asked. What is legal innovation all about? Well, that's a great question. And I think the first thing we have to be clear about is that legal innovation is a type of innovation. And I think this might seem obvious, but lawyers you know, we tend to see law as so unique that all the general lessons from the broader innovation theory out there, that it doesn't apply. And that is really a false impression that sometimes arises. In fact, many of the common pitfalls that people encounter with innovation projects everywhere in the world, not just in law, they recur in the legal sphere and often with even more force than elsewhere because we have been slow to recognize that we can learn lessons from outside of law. So the legal context, of course, makes a big difference in how these lessons apply and to whom it applies to. In our State of Legal Innovation in the Asia-Pacific Report, which SMU co-produced with ALITA, the Asia-Pacific Legal Innovation and Technology Association, we broadly define legal innovation to encompass a few things, new processes, new technologies, as well as new rules. And these are things that are developed by key stakeholders, including legal tech startups, law firms, in-house departments, legislators, regulators, courts, and law schools. So we wanted to really have this broad definition of innovation that captures a lot of what different parties in the broader legal industry, not just law firms, not just startups, uh, are doing in this space. And how important is legal innovation in the APEC region? Right. I think legal innovation is, of course, important everywhere. But going to your question, one reason it might be especially important in the APEC region is that most of us, in fact, if you look at legal history, inherited our laws, our legal systems, rules, processes 
We've got them from some other region, thanks to the colonial history. So broadly speaking, they may not have been optimized for our Asian circumstances. Many countries in this region are also emerging from the post-colonial era. And let's just say that first world legal problems require first world legal solutions. So to me, legal innovation is at its core about making sure our legal systems and rules evolve to meet the dynamic justice needs of the jurisdictions it operates in. I completely agree with you, Gerald. And just looking at Singapore, as we all know, Singapore aims to continue to be the legal services hub in the Asia-Pacific region. And in order to do this, we need to have the right talent. And a sufficient pool of talent is really key to achieving this. So as a professor of law in SMU and a founder of a data analytics startup, and I hear that you're also a self-taught programmer, tell me a little bit more about your journey, the evolution of your career and how all of these took place. I was really a programmer before I even started looking at law. It was a time when everyone thought that building the next Facebook or building the next Twitter was the dream. So a few of my friends and I got together to learn code and we worked on a project that built essentially a website for sharing A-level notes. And through that, I picked up a lot of the skills that I still use today in terms of graphic design, wireframing, coding. And that was before I went to law school. And then when I went to law school, I learned an entirely different set of words and vocabulary and concepts. But one thing that always kept reappearing in my mind, even as I started to do law firm internships, was why is it that the systems we use to manage code are far more advanced than the systems we use to manage laws? Because if you look at it, I think laws have a greater impact on society equal to, if not more than, computer code. So I was very amused by that, and I would try to bring in some of the processes and principles I've learned from programming to make my law school life better. I would automate stuff like downloading of um, materials from the school website. And when it came down to deciding you know, how I should, I could best contribute to the legal industry, I realized that this is something that people were taking seriously, especially when it came down to about 2016, 2017, when suddenly there was a lot of news coming from various sources about the impending automation and disruption of the legal industry by technology. And being a good law student, I suppose my response to it was, well, if there's technology coming and it's uh, something that's of concern, then I had better go and learn as much as I can about it because I'm already somebody with a programming background and if I don't do it, you know, who, who else? What's my excuse, right? So that's how I got into it. And along the way, I came to know of some interest at SMU to develop research and also teaching in this area. Thank you, Gerald. It sounds like the innovation journey started very early on in your career, and I really enjoyed hearing about how you put together all of your skills and knowledge to do what you're doing today. From your perspective as a legal educator and a legal technology founder, what do you think are the important aspects for Singapore as a legal innovation hub? So for Singapore, I think we've always been clear that we are a small and open economy and this affects a lot of our economic policy and industrial policy. We've always had to look outwards for talent and market demand and it's been important for us to remain connected and relevant to the international ecosystem, especially when it comes to legal technology. But for us, I think we need to teach law students about what's happening around the world and to operate at that globalized level. If we are really interested in attracting major legal tech players to set up shop here, we would want to be able to offer a pipeline of talent that they can hire. Right? And for startups, our homegrown legal tech firms need to be internationally ready. And by internationally ready, this often requires support from regulators, from policymakers, 
because going international is never really easy. And to offer legal tech solutions abroad, there are a whole host of regulatory hurdles involved. I think these will be some of the important things for us to pay attention to to become truly a legal innovation hub for the world. Following from what you've just said, my next question is, as one of the few universities providing legal education in Singapore, what is SMU doing in the legal technology, innovation and AI space? Quite a lot, actually. So one key recent development is a law and tech specialization, which our undergrad as well as JD students can declare. To, to declare that, this means they have to take a specific slate of courses from within this law and technology basket, such as, for example, an introductory course to law and tech. In, in 2019, as far as I know, we were one of the first universities in the world to launch a computing and law degree program. So this is special because it is actually a computing degree, it's a computing major, that puts students through also some core law courses. So the balance is about 70% computing and 30% law. In these courses, they are taught just as the law students are. The only exception being that the syllabus is tweaked to cover more tech-related topics. And in terms of post-grad education, there's a recent development as well. We launched a PhD program in law and technology. On the postgraduate education front, many of our CPD courses revolve around subjects like AI regulation. We have a full-fledged certificate in law and technology, which I help with as well. I want to quickly also talk about the research. We have focused quite heavily in this area. The Center for Computational Law, which I deputy direct, is, to my knowledge, one of the only research centers based in the law school, whose primary goal is building software. Because we have the more traditional goal of writing papers about it as well. But the ultimate goal is to build software and to be specific, particular programming language that's optimized for expressing legal rules that's under development. There's also the Center for AI and Data Governance, which looks at the regulatory and legal angles in more detail. Thanks for sharing, and it's really encouraging to hear that so much is being done at SMU. And now just moving on to my next question. So technology and innovation are, as you know, the most trendy words in the legal industry now. Law firms and in-house teams are transforming, and you mentioned about law and tech being taught in law and computing programs at SMU for both undergrad and postgrad. Besides learning law and technology, do you think graduates have a strong grasp of the operations at law firms and in-house teams to enable them to seamlessly transition into the workforce? Yeah, so for this, I think graduates right now, the main source of their knowledge on operations in law firms or in-house teams comes from internships, which of course SMU makes it compulsory for them to go for a substantial amount of internships. And I believe even if we didn't make it compulsory, given the current climate, they would go for quite a few of them anyway. But that, that's the main source of knowledge for them. And it also depends, of course, how much they know would depend on what kind of internships they end up doing, right? If they do intern and in-house team, then they would get a slightly better grasp of well, how in-house departments work. And I think in terms of your question on how to seamlessly transition into the workforce, it, it does really depend. My impression is that every law firm works differently. Every in-house team has their own processes. So what might be the most seamless is if they join the firm they had previously interned in. Thinking now about what a law school is and could do to aid with that, one of the things that we've always taught is how to use some software, for example, LawNet, 
for example, Lexis or Westlaw, that we know that no matter which firm you go to, you probably will have to use it at some point in your career. And as of this moment, we are also thinking seriously about what other things will fulfill that definition, which is, again, regardless of what career path you take, as a lawyer, you must know how to use those things. And just my personal thoughts right now is that that basket of software and processes has been expanding over the years. It might not be enough anymore to just teach LawNet and Lexis and Westlaw. Although I will have to say that you know, at this point, we don't have additional things in our syllabus. I hear you, Gerald, and I agree that the basket of software will continue to increase as we see many different legal technologies being developed and law firms and legal teams using technology to transform their service offerings. How important is the involvement of an industry player or a law firm in the education and development of legal talent? So there's this long-standing debate about how much clinical and practical training law schools should be giving their students. You will hear from some very credible professors and lawyers that industry skills should just be taught by industry and schools should just focus on theory and principle because after all, university is not a trade school. I don't actually take this view and neither, thankfully, does our local legal education system. We have a very practical view that given how few law schools there are in Singapore, we need to make sure that our law schools produce industry-ready people. So given how much practice experience there are, however, in your typical law school, it is probably fair to say, and I don't mean any disrespect to my colleagues, that even if we agree unconditionally that law schools must teach industry skills, well, law schools need help to do so. We need industry players to, at the very least, provide feedback on the kind of skills relevant for the industry. Sitting in my office in the university right now, I would not have as close a view of what industry needs as somebody whose day-to-day is in practice. So in terms of curriculum design, for example, in terms of what kind of learning outcomes, skills they would like ideal graduates to have, in terms of what kind of internship programs we should be targeting, and so on. This is something that industry input is actually very helpful for. And I can make an educated guess, right? But I always want to confirm this with data. It, it ties back to my own research philosophy. Some things are also probably better taught, taught by practitioners than academics or someone who does both. After all, Confucius, if I can quote Chinese philosopher, did say something like, theory without practice is pointless and practice without theory is quite dangerous. And the worst of both worlds, of course, is to have no practice and also no theory. So writing on what you've just said, are you aware of any or are you involved in any initiatives to gather feedback from industry players? Yes, actually, I'm in the process of kind of putting something together. I can't share more at this point because it's very preliminary. But let's just say that I, at least personally, am very interested to get empirical feedback from industry players on what kind of law and technology topics and skills are needed within our students. That's great. Thanks, Gerald. I will move on to my next question now. You were in the recent SMU Legal Innovation and Technology Hackathon, which Clifford Chance has been supporting since it started. How impactful do you think these hackathons are? And should we be holding more of these hackathons or similar events at the student level? The idea of a legal hackathon was something that I myself really wanted to organize when I was a law student. And I'm, I'm glad that eventually somebody managed to take the difficult work of organizing it up and make it happen. A hackathon is really important, not really because of the software it creates. You, know, you can't make a world-changing software in 24 hours. But because of the learning that participants 
go through and also the relationships that sometimes forge. And to give a concrete example of that, when you have a hackathon in the legal tech space, what you see is you have law students attending. You also have the computer science students who are very used to attending hackathons, just not legal ones. They will attend and then they will form teams, they'll make friends, and then they will talk and they will share different perspectives. And that's something that probably up to very recently was quite lacking from the law school syllabus. And by that, I mean really just speaking to somebody from the computer science faculty. You know that in Singapore, the law schools are quite physically distant from the computing schools often. SMU a bit less, but there isn't much school communication. And I think the hackathon like this really anchors that. So with Clifford Chance and other sponsors supporting it, it has really given this whole space a very strong sense of legitimacy and also importance. It becomes an important signal to law students that, hey, this space is not just some small niches targeted at you know, tech geeks or whoever. Everybody can participate and it is a serious endeavor that has really taken off. The networking and sharing seems to be the key takeaway from this hackathon based on what I'm hearing from you. Do you think it makes sense to create similar projects at a course level for students to have this more entrenched or embedded into the curriculum or the way that each module is taught? Yes, this makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I think my colleague has run a course that's like that, where he gets law students to work with computer science students to take on a project over not just 24 hours, but three months in the term to build something substantial for a legal organization. SMU is by no means the only university that has done this. I'm aware in Europe and US universities as well, you see such clinical causes where they try to partner law and computing students to build projects. I think there's one that at Suffolk University, for example, where they built something for the Massachusetts state courts. And the feedback for this has always been very positive. And that's positive feedback, not just from the stakeholders who have received something that was built for them, but also the students who said they really learned a lot, especially the law students who said their perspectives on technology, on how law really works in action has really changed for the better. This sounds like an area that will be constantly changing in the future. And how do you think the curriculum and what students do will impact future talents in the legal tech and innovation space in Singapore and also in APAC? I think universities can't claim credit for everything. Regardless of what universities are doing, future talents entering the legal tech space will come from a generation who really grew up using technology. The Chief Justice has said, for example, that This generation will not accept if justice is the only thing they cannot get on their smartphones. So we are talking about a generation of people who will be skeptical of inefficient paper-based processes. They will question why physical meetings are preferable to virtual meetings. They prioritize meaning over money, community over country clubs, and perhaps even justice over law. So I think firms that foster this kind of mindset and a welcoming of this will be able to attract and retain the best talents and firms that try to fight this might have the opposite experience. Coming back to your question, I mean, I don't know about all universities, but it does seem that universities generally, and not just law schools, they are encouraging the new generation to try to be creative, innovative, multidisciplinary, and meaning-driven as possible. So for example, SMU has a new college, Integrative Studies. The building was just completed and is right behind the law school. And of course, the newly rebranded NUS College as well. So these are examples of efforts to train the creative, innovative, interdisciplinary graduate of the future. Going back to the original idea that we talked about at the start, that first world problems need first world solutions. The kind of issues we are facing nowadays really requires this kind of thinking. 
hopefully we are going to produce a new generation of talents with these skills, being able to take on these big challenges. You know, things like global warming, things like rising economic problems, political and even military conflicts. These are not things that, for example, law alone can solve. As for the practical impact on the legal sector, let's just say that those who graduate from these cutting-edge multidisciplinary courses, especially those who graduate with distinctions and top honours, I don't think these people will be very happy on the first day of work, they show up at a law firm and they're told, well, don't talk too much, just proofread and you'll be fine. I don't think they'll take very nicely to this. I completely agree with you, Gerald. I do think that students today are very fortunate to have forward-thinking educators like yourself and the lecturers at SMU who are looking to the future to transform legal education in order to create a future-proof pool of graduates who have a good mix of future skills and also industry experience. So thank you very much again, Gerald, for sharing your views with us today. It's been a great conversation and I look forward to hearing more about what SMU will be doing in the future. In the next episode of the Clifford Chance Lab Chat Series podcast, we will hear about how blockchain technology is used in the modernization of regulated markets. If you'd like to discuss today's topic in more detail, please get in touch with me or a member of our innovation and best delivery team. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe and listen to our podcasts on the Clifford Chance website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify.